Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, 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 coming at you live from not using filler words anymore. See how this works out today. Good luck. Dan Shapir. Hello from Tel Aviv, and hi to you, Chuck. So great to see you on the show. I know, right? We also have Steve Edwards. Hello from sunny Portland. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. Yeah, I guess people are probably wondering where I've been, and I'm not sure if I've explained that on the show when I've been able to pop in, but essentially due to COVID, my kids were going to school half days, and due to circumstances with my wife and her working at the other kids' school, I had to do carpool during the show, and we just never got around to moving the time. So they just went back full time, which means they get out of school in the afternoon now instead of in the morning. And so I can be here. You know, I have to keep an ear out for my preschooler coming home, but that's it. So I'm back. We have a special guest this week, and that's, let's see if I can get this right, Gerger Grisogano. Wow, that's amazing. Hey, greetings from the sunny split Croatia. Wow. I've been close to Croatia, but not quite there. Made it all the way to Trieste in Italy, but... That was very close, though. You should have yeah. said hi. I should have. Yeah. I actually visited, rocks over the border. I actually visited Croatia, and it's a beautiful place. Highly recommend it. Awesome. Thank you. Very cool. Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there, too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Well, do you want to just let people know who you are and what you do? I know you do a whole bunch of architecture stuff at Modus Create, and we're going to talk about some of the interesting stuff that you've done. But yeah, uh, what, what should people know about you? Yeah, awesome. Thanks. So it's the easiest thing to call me is Gregor, I guess. So I'm a principal consultant and architect at Modus Create. I've been doing that for the past 10 years, but I've been involved in the web as the industry since 2000 or 2001. So mm -hmm. what, what I do basically is, is I try to help all these amazing enterprises ship better products. And I guess I, I help touch their customers' lives by shipping those products better. And that's what I guess we all do. I also had the privilege to uh, work with Modus's R&D department. So this is something that we cherish because the company was started from the open source community, basically from a forum, an EXTJS forum. If, if anyone remembers EXTJS, Sencha, <laughs> there you go. So so that's... I worked that's a contract where they made us use Sencha or EXT. It was EXTJS. Yeah. It wasn't my favorite. But got the job done. But those were amazing times, you know. But it was interesting. The way I got into this was I missed the conference, the first CentraCon in San Francisco. And I said, dude, if I miss this, I want to do something about it. And I was younger, <laughs> 2010. And I decided to run my own conference. 
And I was able to get about seven or 800 people over to split Croatia. It was such a fantastic community that we actually visit each other still now, even during COVID. So that's one of the things that's really excited me about the open source community is the relationships that, you know, people make and just by, you know, contributing to the code for free, for all that stuff. It's, it's just amazing. So this is something that I've been able to work on at Modus Create and Modus Labs, work on op open source, helping other open source projects, both with, you know, actual bugs fixing, coding, all that, and financially. We uh, recently, we, we helped view and we are really glad with what the core team has done with Vue.js 3. It's absolutely amazing. But other than that, lately I've been working a lot with micro frontends, which is, I think, a fantastic architectural thing. I think it's very contractual setup for enterprises that solve a lot of problems from scaling to even performance. So that's really where my mind is at right now. Gotcha. And I've, I've heard micro front ends. It, it feels kind of buzzwordy to me, I'll, I'll admit. But I'm just going to start out asking for a definition on this one because I've seen a lot of different things where people have used the word and I'm not sure that I've gotten a real clear definition on it. Sure. Well, so I don't think I have the official definition. And I also don't think it's something that surfaced any time recently. Because, you know, people have been using this term, and you're right, it's a buzzword. People have been using it, toying around with it uh, in the past two, maximum three years. But it's it existed since, like, early day with things like server-side includes or frames. All those could be considered micro, micro front-ends. But th the whole principle is to try and avoid monolithic architectures and split code into meaningful business values so that, you know, even better if we could have separate teams, dedicated teams to specific business values, they have their own life cycle, they, they maintain their own code, they, they maintain the, their own pipelines, deployments, and so on. And then everything basically gets combined back into the whole eventually. So, you know, there are obviously multiple ways to achieve that. And historically, things like iframes have been used, or as I said, server side includes. Now we have things like edge side includes. Then we have a number of JavaScript frameworks for that, mostly based on uh, system JS, low JS, all that stuff. But I think the the most one of the most modern approaches is by using Webpack Five Module Federation that was just released in October of last year, and that's very go promising. Yeah, before we go uh, diving specifically into that technology, when I think of my, just want to mention that when I think of micro front end, what it mostly means to me is that if we have like let's say three teams working on the front end, and for some reason one team prefers React and the other one prefers Vue, and the third one prefers Angular, well then we can they use all three frameworks on the same web application slash website altogether without conflicts. That's kind of what micro front end means to me. Now, whether or not that's a good thing can be uh, debated, but it certainly creates a situation where different teams working on the same project can 
choose their own stack and can also make progress in their project without worrying about conflicts with the other teams working on the same product. That's that's a great explanation, Dan. So I agree mostly. What I don't agree with is well, a lot too much freedom. And the goal is to strike the right balance balance with with uh, contractual agreements. While in theory it would be possible to mix and match frameworks like Node.js and React in Vue, oh, Node.js, look at that, Angular and React and Vue, in practice, that may create problems in runtime, obviously. Three different frameworks loaded in the same apps may, you know, they have different dependencies and all that. So I think aligning and agreeing on a minimum viable amount of libraries that run an app is going to go long ways in making sure that the application is still maintainable. On the other side, things like uh, pipelines, even you know, ESLint configs, TypeScript, all that, all those approaches to development, that's absolutely, you know, it's a democracy. Choose whatever you would like, as long as the end result is going to be compatible with your building as a whole. So you can't mix not- a match. You don't let us do anything <laughs> fun, man. So, so you're not so much in favor of creating uh, a strict separation. Like you mentioned yourself at the beginning that uh, historically one approach to creating uh, micro frontends has been iframes, where effectively every team has uh, its own quote-unquote uh, browser. Because when you're in an iframe, you can, to a great extent, care less about what's going on on the outside, certainly in uh, sibling iframes. So you're not actually promoting such a uh, strict separation. You seem to be promoting somewhere that's more of a sort of a balanced approach of creating separation, but still having some sort of commonality, let's call it, between the the various micro front ends. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we need we are seeking for balance everywhere in life, right? Um, we we talked about sweets earlier, and yes, you know, it's not good to have too much sweets, but it's not good to have too little sweets in life. So similar with that, I think there needs to be. A, it's good to have balance. You don't have to have balance because, after all, you can also decouple the app on the route basis. So, for example, uh, an e-commerce site could have an entirely different setup in cart and checkout than they do in product listing pages. But the thing is uh, reusability, reusability of theming, of maybe certain source code like uh, UI components, maybe reusability of dependencies. Some kind of reusability is going to be healthy so that the application can continue to be fast so that some of the uh, business values can continue to be achieved uh, with a little bit of shared code. Obviously, too much of that is usually not going to be very positive either because too much contracts is going to create a steep learning curve. So it's going to be difficult to onboard people. It's going to create the need to document a lot of things, which means that you have to read about a lot of things before accomplishing a goal and all that. Again, it's it's a balancing thing. 
What I find interesting whenever I have this sort of a discussion is that, you know, we like to consider ourselves uh, certainly engineers, maybe sometimes even scientists, and really rational about decisions and the architectures that we create. But more often than not, what I see when I'm looking at a complicated, uh, sophisticated, let's say, product, is that the architecture is actually driven by HR. And what I mean by that is that, say, you have uh, 20 people working on a project. Well, then 20 people is going to be four teams or maybe or three, let's say three or four teams. So let's have uh, four. If we have four teams, then we'll have four micro front ends. So really the architect and then we separate the product into four parts so that each team with its own micro front end has more or less equal responsibility so we can all progress at more or less the same rate. So really, instead of having the architecture being driven by the problem that we're trying to solve, it's actually driven by the, the people and the organizational, uh, by the org chart that we have. Well, that is such an interesting point. I love that you brought it up. I think what I usually, because having the, the pleasure to work with a lot of different clients across the globe, I don't think I have ever really uh, got into the challenge of the HR deciding, uh, but uh, certain aspects of agile uh, direction that comes from either the stakeholders or product management uh, can indeed influence what this looks like. You're absolutely right. And, um, well, obviously, one of the things that's really to HR is, hey, we already have, you know, React developers, so we need to do this in React. And kind of that made sense. But someone other than the team deciding how the team works, that's a diff difficult situation to be in. And I'm, if, well, I'm not sure if this is exactly aligning for success, but I guess if rules are what they are, it is what it is. To your earlier point, I liked when you said we are engineers and we are scientists to a degree. And I think that's also an important point that you mentioned because what, what I see a lot is I see people being emotionally attached to technology, to their decisions, to their even their code, right? And I don't, I'm not really sure that that is a healthy thing too because in my experience, being emotionally attached to technology creates healthy conflict, but also unhealthy conflict when it gets personal. And this is something that actually was yesterday. My, yeah, it was yesterday, beginning of this week, that uh, we had the discu this discussion because we are implementing microfinance architecture with one of one of the leading premium car brains from Germany. And uh, we are running with a number of really amazing teams that are structured like the way you said. We have teams and we have sub-teams like pair programming. And that's all very, very agile. People can really decide where they can uh, contribute more or the best. But we talked about the concept of being emotionally attached to technology because we saw that some people were uh, falling in the trap of being too, as I said, emotional about choosing specific technologies to go with. And when the discussion went a different direction, they become upset. And I think this is exactly what scientists should not be doing, being attached to uh, decisions. And not being attached to decisions really helps us 
distance away, rethink, and even listen to what others have to say. And uh, usually that really helps us to learn something new, get better, and grow. I totally agree <laughs> with, it, with everything that you just said. And before I took us down this rabbit hole, you started to mention Webpack Federation as a modern means to implement micro frontends. Is that something you can elaborate on? Absolutely. So Module Federation is, is basically new and it, it's been released in October of 2020. But it's something that has been worked on uh, for a couple of years before it was released. And I feel it's in a very stable state. Module Federation is something that's it's one of those things that are incredibly simple, but in also amazingly powerful. Uh, so what, what Module Federation allows us to do is to basically split our monolithic bundles, big bundles, into a number of smaller, um, I want to say libraries, but not the kind of libraries that are published to NPM, the kind of libraries that are published to a CDN, which is which is a world of difference. Um, it allows us to specify which parts of an app to load from, as I said, from the CDN at runtime. And by doing that, it allows software developers to specify dependencies. So dependencies are easily reused because Webpack, um, well, we can talk about that in detail if we wish, but Webpack does a really, really good job to resolve any dependencies using semantic versioning and figure out which dependencies to load from where and how to avoid duplication. So basically what you end up with in, in the final product, you end up with a really, really good scalable product that implements some of the best practices in perf uh, perceived performance, such as uh, lazy loading, by default, and that that's an amazing feature. Can you can you give a concrete example or just a more technical ex explanation of how this actually works? Yes, absolutely. So, if if you use Webpack configs, then what really needs to happen is for each part of a project, uh, a team should use a, a custom setup for each project. Now we talked about this. So each team works in a different repository, they have different pipeline and so on. That also means that in this scenario, each team would have their own Webpack configuration. Webpack configuration allows us to uh, specify three, uh, three main uh, settings that are used for combining apps together, right? The libraries that it consumes, external libraries, which is similar to what we would do with NPM, but these are actually located either in the, on, on another dev server or on a CDN. We define what it is that we are sharing with them, and we are defining dependencies that need to be shared so that they are all, they're only built once and loaded once. In real life, if we had an app and we can talk about really any app. So, so let's talk about you know Amazon.com. Uh, so Amazon starts with that header and the menu, and then you, you get like your product listing. So the menu can be a, a wonderful, I'm going to call it micro feature, micro front end feature, or a feature app. 
the menu could be a wonderful feature app because a team can work just on that menu. And another team can work just on the product listing on the homepage of Amazon. Now, if you think about another example, that could be the YouTube player. A team can work on the player itself that has the video feed uh, controls, and they are in charge of how YouTube plays videos. They have their own code base. They have their own build system. Then there's a team, I guess, that works on metadata like name, description, and another team that works on the comments. Now, the cool thing about comments is that they are usually below the fold. So you need to scroll down for comments to load. And because, because Webpack Federation uh, works with asynchronous JavaScript, so that means that things are not always loaded at once. They're loaded basically when needed. And as I said, asynchronously. So as we scroll down, we can set it up so that comments as a, a whole different feature can be loaded exactly when needed. Now in this setup, we, we just had three feature apps. Another feature app would be, you know, that coming up next list on the right-hand side of the desktop web player. So we just we were just able to decouple uh, a larger app into four sections that maybe four teams or three teams can maintain. The interesting thing about module federation is that it does a lot of the things in the background. Uh, it prepares everything at build time. It adds the necessary runtime code at build time. So when things are imported, and, and actually there's a lot of standard work inside um, how module federation works. There's no really new APIs that developers need to learn. They just import stuff as, as always. And eventually the whole page comes or app comes together at runtime. Dependencies get resolved automatically. They're fetched from the best available uh, distribution. And you know the rest is just data work. Data is collected from an API and the video gets played. If I can ask, how is this different or how is this better than just uh, you know going to the simplest alternative implementation, just injecting script tags that load the in the different modules like that? Why do I need Webpack to download JavaScript dynamically for me? when the browser has been doing it for years. If I just create a script tag, make it, let's say, a sync, it's a sync by default if it's a dynamically created script tag, and have it load the module that way. I was wondering about oh. that too. <laughs> Absolutely, you could. But that creates a lot more contractual agreements, right? You can add a lot of script tags, uh, but the thing is, how do they play it together, right? Um, and I, I suppose you're still creating a monolith, which means that there needs to be a lot of shared understanding and shared knowledge. Things usually have to uh, happen at a given time. Whereas with, with something like module federation, which is really the bare bones of microfrontends, you know, honestly, there needs to be a layer of additional support on top of that to make things work properly. Uh, things like communication between those feature apps and um, and a few other issues to resolve. But the whole thing is, if you're adding script tags, you're still build, building a monolith. 
you're, you still need the teams to be aware of what each other are doing. And aside from that, there's in that case, there's usually, well, wouldn't that there be always uh, the usual build step that needs to combine most of the application? Or if, if there isn't, is, isn't there a lot of work to make sure that everything actually plays well together, especially with dependencies that may or may not be shared or duplicated and that kind of problems? Putting aside sharing and duplication, what this mostly, and again, I might be missing the point, but what this really seems to, to sound like to me is like a resurgence of uh, AMD, kind of like what we had with Require.js where we could specify dependencies and be sure that things are loaded in order and properly exposed to each other. Is this what it's all about, or, or, is, or am I missing some bit of functionality or insight here? You're not. So, so this would work on top of AMD, because you get to choose how your uh, modules are bundled. You can bundle AMD or CommonJS or... ES modules, uh, system.js, registered modules, a, a number of things. Eventually, it is going to resolve with, well, depending on the way you bundle the library, it is going to uh, resolve, end up uh, being loaded as script tags too, uh, which, is, which is also a great thing because everything, everything uh, modification is bringing to the table is using existing uh, standards to make lives easier, right? So what module federation makes uh, easier is to combine all those technologies that already exist and make it easier for developers to communicate and reuse uh, their features. So uh, basically what, it, what you end up with is all those script tags that, that uh, were mentioned, all those separate features that were mentioned, being able to use and reuse as part of JavaScript code through your JavaScript without needing to worry about where it comes from, where it is, uh, what version are you running, and, and so on. Um, to, to that extent, it really helps make developers' live, lives easier by kind of uh, adding that layer of functionality to the end users, right? Again, we still follow the same standards that are already in place um, with a little bit of automation that helps developer experience and helps developers communicate together without having to add uh, a lot of contractual agreements. If I, again, assuming that uh, I understand correctly what you're explaining, then essentially what we're getting is Webpack modules, either static or dynamic, but that instead of being, of, uh, being built together, and coming together from the same location, either as a single bundle or as, as, as separate chunks, but still uh, built together and coming from the same origin. Now we can specify that these uh, uh, Webpack modules are actually coming from a particular from a, from any general URL, and then, like you said, it can, it's just coming from a CDN instead of. Uh, being built together is is that more or less what it is that's on point that's absolutely correct and what that allows is is i think a lot more flexibility in how uh, the organiza organizational aspect of running teams work where we allow teams 
uh, a lot more freedom, and uh, I think I used the term democracy earlier, uh, a lot more freedom to work on their features to focus on delivering business value of um, their business unit and to uh, maintain the entire life cycle of developing uh, their part of uh, the app, right? And eventually, it all comes together in the you know final result, final application. But but this is, uh, I think, one of the biggest values uh, for an organization. And this is something that um, when you look at it, when, you, when we zoom out and we look at it, it really allows for scaling of large apps. So I think what I would add is if we look at it, if, if we start to think about uh, microfinance and module federation, and we, we think about, hey, is this good for my project? Then I would say it's probably an overkill for a lot of small projects um, because this is really meant, and I think the, the largest value of using microfinance is in scaling. And um, using setting that whole thing up in, for small application applications, I think, can be a, a little bit of an overkill because a lot of things have to happen to make this work, right? And we need to decouple things into separate repositories, separate pipelines, separate, separate deployments, and so on. Another amazing value for this. Now, I know... Uh, a lot of developers are listening to this and may not, they may not care, but their businesses or clients will care. Is that if you think of it, if you have all these features deployed separately, then what you could do, you could really track the usage of those features and the cost of the features because that cost is also associated with, you know, maybe how it's provisioned in the cloud. So you can manage cloud costs or AWS or Azure or something and how much that costs per feature. And not to mention analytics that are, you know, beautiful for this kind of approach, but you can also, also track things like the patterns of how people use feature apps from the aspect of how they're loaded. Um, also an interesting point. Another thing that I find interesting is, is versioning of those features which is great for business because when when you can version things, you can also do incremental upgrades. You can have beta testers that can toggle a kind of a new pre-release version or they can run A-B tests uh, fairly, fairly easily, you know, something that could be driven by configuration. So I think those are all really important things to consider, consider which makes uh, microfrontends not just uh, a cool thing for for developers to play with, absolutely great thing to learn, but it, it makes sense to couple that with the right needs of the business. How do you actually version these URLs to those CDNs? I mean, when you use the the Webpack, uh, Webpack Federation, how how do things get versioned? Because uh, you know, obviously, when you're just using Webpack the the old fashioned way. You've got the package JSON, but that is not really relevant anymore when you're just downloading stuff from a CDN. So, so how is versioning management managed in that scenario? Yeah, great question. This this is why I said module federation is not the end of the game. It's not the final step. It's one of the parts of the architecture that makes 
um, I want to say loading of features um, a lot easier and streamlined, but there are other decisions that architects and developers need to make. And that is, as you said, versioning is one of them. A, a very easy thing to do, a thing that really works is to uh, deploy every new increment into a different uh, subfolder. For example, if you're using S3 buckets, right? Uh, and we are deploying version 1.3, and that goes into a separate folder, 1.3. So the final URL for that feature will contain the version number inside. Now, we can do a lot of clever things uh, and have things like um, Lambda or serverless functions to resolve uh, the latest version or resolve the closest semantically um, a version that people require. So, for example, you can uh, insert the URL to say slash latest, or you can do things like slash 1.3.x or something like this. You know, all those smart things can happen, but that needs to be uh, developed. That needs to be architected. So, basically, out of the box, URLs are just fixed strings. If I want them to be something, if I need to do some sort of version management in this type of a scenario, I, but you're basically saying is that I need to build it myself and I can make it, uh, if I need it to be sophisticated, well, then I'll probably need to build some sort of a versioning microservice and use that. that is that what you're saying? You're absolutely right. But what comes out of it is, is well, definitely, uh, as I said, modulation, not, not, uh, not, some, not silver bullet. You need to build on top of it. Um, but if you have all that infrastructure, if you if the team can you know work that out, make sure it happens, then another another amazing thing to do, uh, a feature that the business gets is when a new feature is deployed, and there is a regression issue, then the system can be developed in a way that uh, regression is caught, and the application loads the last known version that works really well. Now that's that's also amazing business value that comes with micro frontends, and this is something that, micro, that Webpack Federation makes a lot easier than ever before. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it: the only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They, they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at javascriptjabber.com slash Raygun. I'm not clear on why it's easier. 
Sorry, so you're not clear as to what Webpack Federation makes, why Webpack Federation makes that easier? Yes, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I understand why Webpack Federation makes handling regressions easier. Oh, Webpack Federation doesn't handle regressions, but it helps us stay aligned with proper building approaches. And it helps us build those because Webpack Module Federation is, is a part of a bundling or a build tool, Webpack, right? It helps us really um, uh, tailor it to what we actually need. And it works well in combination with um, other tools in this ecosystem, which in this case can be things that are actually loading on in the cloud, right? Webpack uh, Module Federation does not, as I said, does not solve for these problems. This is part of what we as uh, you know, software architects and developers actually do in association with Webpack Module Federation. Does that make sense? I guess. <laughs> oh, no. I guess I, I know. Oh, he's sold I, on it now. <laughs> no, I mean, look, it seems to be one of those things that until I get my actually get my hands dirty with it, I'm having some issues uh, grasping the intricacies and the benefits. Let's put it this way. Mm-hmm. Okay, as I said, Webpack Module Federation is a very simple addition to Webpack as the build tool. But that simplicity gives it a lot of power. It doesn't solve all the issues. It helps us use the existing standards in a, in a very defined way. And it helps us build micro frontends uh, and, and maintain how micro frontends import dependencies, resolve shared libraries, and, and put the application together. It helps us build multiple features independently and then load that together. What I was talking about is are the effects of that freedom that we have. Okay, so module federation is not going to help us create a cloud scaffolding, but it gives us the freedom to think about our apps, well, uh, in a different way, which is, again, why I said maybe micro is, is not something that a small website should leverage, right? It's, it's probably something that's uh, going to be a lot more interesting to enterprises or any larger pro- uh, project and so on. I have to kind of say, from my perspective, sort of a word of, of caution about micro frontends. So we, we've actually been discussing micro frontends in, in a couple of, of episodes. We talked about micro frontends working with web components, for example. We talked about the micro frontends as a solution for uh, framework, uh, framework versioning and, and stuff like that. And, and in fact, like as, as a sort of a, of a way to manage uh, larger projects, like you said. The word of caution that I want to throw in is that at the end of the day, micro frontends are, let's call it a benefit for the developers. And we really need to be careful that when we're making life easier for the developers, that it doesn't come too much at the expense of the end users. And too often I've seen situations where, like I I kind of joked about it at the beginning of this conversation, that you might see micro frontends being used to create a web application that uses uh, React and Vue and Angular all together on the same on the same site. 
Now, this might be great for an organization that has a lot of legacy code or developers that are used to particular frameworks and don't want to go to the hassle of switching, but it comes at an expense of the user because when you load these three frameworks into the same web page, it's going to have overhead. And that loading overhead, slow loading website, for example, uh, is going to be coming at the expense of the user or the visitor. So you definitely need to be careful about that. But if you can get your cost down in that regard, keep your cost down. Maybe it's because you're using really uh, lightweight frameworks like uh, Preact or there was another one that I recall on our show. Uh, AJ, you remember the, the one that talked about in the past? Lit, uh, Lit HTML, that's it. So if if you're if you're using really lightweight frameworks and it can work, uh, or if you're let's say you're building an enterprise solution that's only going to ever be used inside of an intranet where everybody has really fast connections and fast computers and 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 don't care about slow networks and and lower end devices, then this can work. But otherwise, you need to be careful when making this sort of uh, of a decision. That's really the summary from my perspective. Mm. It makes sense, and I, I can see how, how I see why you said this, which is why I, I would like to add micro frontends is if we take a step back, it's just a concept of being able to decouple business features, features, business, parts of the app, so that we have to choose how they are glued together. Now, different implementations or just different types of glue and how we actually connect that together. Module federation is a type of glue, but the main content, the main app, the, the stuff that we create is still on us. This is still on someone or some team, some people to decide on. When we say micro frontends, we basically allow teams to worry about what they know best. And which is why I said in the beginning, Striking the right balance is incredibly important because I think we definitely want to avoid having too many technologies being loaded in an app. And if that happens, you're absolutely right. The user is going to suffer the consequences, most likely in the ways of not enjoying good performance. But again, this is not a result of using micro frontends. It's the result of, it's probably not right to say too much freedom, or too little constraints, or too few constraints. And we need to worry about that no matter if we use micro frontends or we use any other solution, because you could do that in a regular app and use multiple frameworks. If it's a big monolithic app, it's still possible to do that, but we don't want to do that. Why would we want to do that in micro frontends then? That's, that would be the question. I guess the thing I'm wondering, and you've both kind of spoken to this, is so let's say that I get to a certain level of complexity and I'm starting to think about using module federation and micro front ends to solve some of the issues that I'm facing in my app. How do I know it's a good fit? Like, how do I know if my app is big enough or complex enough or has enough concerns or, mm-hmm. um, you know, whatever that's going to make it a, a clear decision as opposed to? You know, I think I think Dan is raising some of the trade-offs that really do appear, you know, in a solution like this, you know. And so, yeah, when do you start looking at it and going, okay, this is clearly the direction that we ought to be 
uh, at least thinking deeply about implementing versus just going, yeah. mm, no, not yet. I hear you. I hear you. Well, also, Dan is on point to a degree, right? Because there, the one thing is when someone has a lot of experience and someone knows exactly what they're building, they're going to make sure that the application is you know, performant, it's fast, it's optimized, it uses just enough libraries and all those best case scenarios are applied. But truth be told, we don't live in that kind of world, mm -hmm. right? And people, people use uh, technologies, which is, again, all the more reason why we should, uh, why it's good for technologies to do one thing and one thing only and be good at so that we don't introduce a lot of complexity that people need to learn because they're absolutely going to use it in the wrong way. That's going to happen. So from your question was, when do I know that my app could be decoupled and, and go run uh, as a micro front end? It's, it's, it's an excellent question. I don't think I know the exact time when you say that. And I think that decision, I absolutely believe that that kind of decision needs to be made in partnership with the business. Being product owners, stakeholders, being software architect or architects that are working on that product. It could be even content authors because we end up really building something that's going to be consumed by multiple personas, right? And I think we need to know what kind of benefit this is building for the business, bringing for the business. I'll just give a couple of a couple of examples. I mentioned content authors, right? A lot of bigger apps are data-driven. So, so what happens if someone out there is using a CMS or a hella CMS like Contentful or something, and they are in, in the driver's seat deciding what it is that gets pushed to the apps that the users see, right? When they work with data, they often don't have a good preview functionality because they either need to rebuild the entire app or they need to run the entire app and so on. When features are decoupled and deployed individually, then content authors get a, a very unique opportunity to see what their content is going to look like because they can preview on in the scope of a single part of a whole or a feature instead of having to work with the entire app and maybe wait for rebuild time to happen and so on. So, so that's a business value. Another business value is obviously when you have multiple teams. So how do we cut new releases? How do we create new increments? If new increments require long build steps, so this is taking a lot of time, a lot of testing, a lot of time wasted in uh, CI, CD pipelines, then maybe that's a good sign that an app could be decoupled in smaller units so that all those uh, lengthy cycles can be minimized, which means, hey, maybe I don't need to rebuild a whole app to create an increment. I just need to rebuild a feature and here's the, here goes the, the increment. In some scenarios, it's security. I know some companies don't like to share the entire code base with their developers for whatever reason. And they uh, go use take different approaches to, to, make, to handle their intellectual property. So th that could be a reason to go to micro frontends because you want to allow developers to only a subset of the entire feature set. 
That's cool, um, but I wouldn't work at a company like that. <laughs> I hear you. Uh, well, uh, honestly, I wouldn't work at a company where HR decides on what kind of teams work on a project. Oh uh, yeah, I was kind of flippant there. I me- <laughs> I mostly I mostly meant that the org chart determines the architecture rather than the other way around. Yeah. But but anyway, absolutely. So what I want to say, a lot of these business values, right? Microfinance make it definitely easier to migrate, uh, not just to whole new frameworks, also to new, to to new versions of libraries, because you can go step by step. Triangular pattern is almost natural to to microfrontends. Then again, uh, it's a beautiful pluggable architecture. So if you need to work with something pluggable that that doesn't load at the same time, that loads when needed. Where places where you can uh, theme apps on on demand, you know that's all great. But eventually, that's all possible with micro front ends. But eventually, the team organization is, I think, one of the core values uh, that teams get. You know, big bigger teams can be easily made smaller because smaller teams. I think it's this is perfect for pair programming. You know, pairs can work on on specific features that are that big or that small and really excel. So it's not just scaling in terms of the application size. It's also scaling in terms of the speed of development. So I have a question here that's sort of a little higher level than some of the weeds you guys have been getting into. You know, obviously, we throw around the term micro front ends a lot. And I don't know if we've defined what the term micro means. So my question is, and I'm sure this is relative or situation dependent, but in your experience, how micro is micro? So are we talking a page? Are we talking an element on a page? You know, are you talking a line of text within an element? I mean, just throwing things out there, but Uh, is there like a generic definition of, of micro when we're talking about micro front ends? That's a fantastic question, Steve. I love it. So, uh, in all honesty, that's a difficult thing to figure out. If we think of atomic design, where we have atoms as the smallest unit, and we have molecules that grow to, into organisms, and then we have templates and pages, right? If we, if we think about that for a second, then I would say micro frontends really make sense for organism templates and pages not so much atoms and molecules. In a more, well, kind of real-life sense, I think anything that's a UI component library stays a UI component library, right? So a button is not going to be a microfront. That doesn't make sense. We would have too many of those. But as I said, a menu, a menu could be an excellent Micro front end, so so things that are uh, more into organism templates and pages realm and less atoms and molecules. There are exceptions when we want to allow content manage or content authors to work with very specific layouts, and their CMS doesn't have all the powers, all the super cow powers, to ensure proper uh, setup of uh, these features into smart layouts. And those smart layouts could be anything from complex carousels or those layouts that have multiple placeholders, if, if you will. Um, and in that case, it may make sense to create a micro, micro front end that speaks just to that problem. But in real life, I think what, what really makes more sense is something that's a collection of meaning, meaningful components 
that make up a business value. I'm also going to add, if you look at an app or a website and, and you notice the about default content, right? And, and let's, let's redefine that or critical path content, if you will. If we redefine that, I would say it's everything that a human sees uh, when they first load the app without having to interact with it, without having to scroll down or hit on a button. That's that's the uh, most meaningful, meaningful part. So if there is a hamburger menu that that goes behind a button that opens on in Rasha, that's that's something that we can definitely consider to uh, put away as a feature app. Or if if there is a big chunk of content that needs to load when we scroll down, and an example is those comments in YouTube. I think that's that's a fantastic candidate for a feature app. So as I said, it's not easy. It requires thought. It requires understanding uh, the business case. It also requires understanding user behavior. Does that help? Yeah. I mean, there's obviously no one set definition for what a micro front end is. Obviously, it can depend on the application. I think you answered my question, though. It was, you know, how small do we get? Obviously, not down to a button, but, you know, something larger than that that, you know, contains a piece of functionality. Yeah, makes sense. What's the testing story on micro frameworks? Is it the same as just other libraries or other work that you do? Well, with testing, it's, as you said, the great thing about that is, you know, when, when I see people test apps and whenever testing is on the table for discussion, I usually see a lot of people being very passionate about different uh, frameworks and approaches, different ways of testing apps, you know, a lot of different things that are brought to the table and need to be discussed. And maybe this is why this is one of the clear benefits of using micro front ends because every team can choose their own strategy, their own setup, and you know live with it, enjoy doing that, love their lives. But one thing that I believe needs to happen is the whole project needs to have real good integration testing, end-to-end integration. Eventually, you know what is going to happen. Obviously, is the user is going to see the whole project, not just the feature by feature. And we need to make sure that when things run in the whole unit, they work well together. And um, how we do that, how that's achieved. Now, there are, again different approaches, but one of the things that I found very interesting is is testing with screenshot comparison. And, and it's only because, obviously, obviously, pictures speak a thousand words. Sometimes we don't catch errors. And letting screenshot comparison uh, show us the differences between different iterations and how they play together can, can actually uh, point interesting bugs and situations to QA engineers or even developers who end up seeing that. So before cutting a final release for any feature app, it's great if it's possible to run a, a test suite that's going to test that kind of progression in a, a kind of end-to-end integration test. I think that's, that's a very important thing for, for the company. Awesome. We're kind of getting toward the end of our time. Is there anything else that we want to jump on, folks, before we do picks? I'm good. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. This episode is sponsored by Sentry. Sentry is the thing that I put into all of my apps first thing. I figure out how to deploy them. I get them up on the web. 
and then I run Sentry on them. And the reason why is because I need to know what's going on in my app all the time. The other thing is, is that sometimes I miss stuff. I'll run things in development, works on my machine. We've all been there, right? And then it gets up into the cloud or up on a server and stuff happens, stuff breaks. I didn't configure it right. AWS credentials, something like that, right? And so I need to get the error reporting back. But the other thing is, and this is something that my users typically don't give me information on, is I need to know if it's performing well, right? I need to know if it's slowing down because I don't want them getting lost into the Twitterverse because my app isn't fast enough. So I put Sentry in, I get all of the information about what's going right and what's going wrong, and then I can go in and I can fix the issues right away. So if you have an app that's running slow, you have an app that's having errors, you have an app that you're just getting started with, go check it out, sentry.io slash four, that's F-O-R slash JavaScript, and use the code JSJabber for three months of their base team plan. AJ, do you want to start us with picks? Yeah. So you might have noticed during this episode, I didn't use any filler words. That's thanks to not having said anything. But what I'm going to pick, I picked this last week, is Jim Quick. The YouTube channel is actually Mind Valley, the one that I was first introduced to. He has a video on having a morning routine. And after years and years and years of being a very late riser, night owl type person, I, due to various reasons, but wanting to feel better, wanting to feel more healthy and really needing to, I decided to develop a morning routine and it is making my life so much better because once I've stuck one, how to say, I've laid the first brick down and it's more clear where the other bricks need to go. I feel like I'm more organized. I feel like I'm more healthy. That's because I've got a small, tiny amount of exercise as part of my morning routine, but it literally, I'm running for about a minute, but it makes all the difference in the world to the way that I'm feeling throughout the day. So I'm going to give a link to Jim Quick. And I've got a couple other ones here. That and was a filler word. Dang it. (laughs) This is hard. It's very hard to develop this habit. (laughs) Resist the urge. Well, my goal is that if I can learn to speak without using filler words, that means that I have to change the way that my thoughts are processing in my brain so that I'm doing whole sentences at a time. And then I can pause poignantly to let my brain catch up and then find what the next sentence is going to be. And it will also help me to communicate better with others. And I think that it's a good thing. Anyway, pardon me as I stumble through this with such awkward pauses by avoiding saying like, so, um, you know, etc. I've, so I, for a long time, I've had this idea of Beyond Code Bootcamp, and I've talked about it a little bit last year, but I haven't really done much with it. And a lot of that was due to analysis paralysis, where I know that I can create some really great content, but that great content takes me 10 to 100 times longer than it takes me to produce mediocre content. And that's part of what this not using filler words is about, is if I can produce better mediocre content, mediocre content that is up towards good, maybe not quite towards great, and I create more of it, then I will be able to have a greater effect than if I let my analysis paralysis get a hold of me. Now, eventually I do want to create really streamlined, super smooth, super professional videos. And I've done a couple of those, but in the meantime, 
I am taking your questions. I would really love it if you would either follow on Facebook, YouTube, or Twitter if you've got some questions for me or if you just want to follow how this goes. I am starting from the beginning with things like how to use Vim, how to use Markdown, how to set up a server. And then there are a couple of computer science-y things that are being sprinkled in in between. And I will move on to coding. So most of you that are listening to this already are coding. But if you know somebody who isn't or you've got some questions that you'd like to ask, please do. And I will have a link to Beyond Code on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter in the pics section here. And one last thing is there's a TV show on BYU TV called Comedy IQ. It's super clean. It's a reality TV show based on a comedian who is teaching kids how to be comedians and get their start. And it's something that my wife and I have enjoyed that my little two-year-old daughter can somewhat pay attention to. It's interesting enough visually that it keeps her eyes on the screen a little bit too. Not that I want to train her to be a brain drain type of person, but it's a good show. Comedy IQ on BYU TV. Do recommend. All right. Dan, what are your picks? Well, I've got two picks today. One that is totally related to technology and the other one that totally isn't. So which one do I want to start with? I'll start with the one that uh, isn't. So after watching a couple of uh, YouTube videos about uh, how to make them, I decided to create, uh, to prepare smash burgers. Luckily, we've got uh, this uh, grill that's right next to our kitchen in the yard and it's connected to the gas, so it's really easy to start up. And I've, I've done it twice now, and it's with apologies to our vegan and vegetarian friends. It's absolutely delicious and uh, highly recommended to the meat lovers amongst us. And it's really fast and easy to make. And like I said, very, very tasty. My kids definitely approve. So that would be my first pick. And the second pick is one that I may have made before in some episode way back, but I think it's, it's worth mentioning again. So I have this thing for JavaScript riddles. I like exploring the various strange edge cases of our, of our favorite programming language. And one way that I like to, do, to go about it is by making up riddles. And I've been doing that for the past five years. Uh, and if you want to try your hand at solving the, all, the, all the, these riddles that I've created, uh, they're all on Twitter. Just look for the hashtag JavaScript riddle as one word. I'll actually give a link that uh, we can put in the show notes that will just open Twitter on that hashtag and you can try it out. I try to put them out at you know not regular intervals because I don't always have good ideas for additional riddles. But, you know, every once in a while. So if uh, this seems like fun to you, make sure to follow me on Twitter. And those would be my picks for today. Awesome. Steve, what are your picks? So I'm going to go down the humor route again today and go with a couple of Instagram accounts that I follow that give me are a couple of my sources for my daily jokes or puns. One is called pun bible so it's instagram.com slash pun underscore bible and that one has a variety of different formats and jokes that they use over and over and then the second one is one that pun bible's had once in a while and they've got a full channel and it's called stand up t-rex 
and it's all <laughs> it's a all the jokes use the same four panel drawing of a t-rex supposedly doing stand-up in a comedy club and two of the panels are jokes and then the last two everybody looking at him like huh and he's looking back at them so anyway i'll put the links in the show notes but uh, those are two good ones if you're if you're into the bad jokes like i am all right cool uh i'm gonna throw in a few picks so i just finished the process of designing my 12-week year which is basically my uh, short-term planning for where i want to wind up you know and that's usually based on a a three-year plan that i break down into a one-year plan and then i plan out you know the next three months which is 12 weeks it's a, there's a terrific book called The 12 Week Year that I kind of base it out of. Okay. And uh, I'll put a link to that in the show notes too, because I really ought to. So, anyway, what I've been doing is I put in my 12 week year, and I'm not going to show it off because there's some stuff in there that I uh, don't necessarily want public at the moment. But one thing that I have really been diving into here is just planning this out. When I, when I planned it out, one of the things that for whatever reason I decided to do was at the end of the the 12 week year which is for me ends uh June 6th <laughs> there were three things the first one I'm not, like I said I'm not going to mention the second one is run a marathon i ran a marathon a year and a half ago and i want to do it again but i'm going to do one that's local cuz last time it just didn't work out that my family could be there so i literally ran the marathon hobbled over to my truck and then drove back to where we were staying <laughs> all by myself that that this was time. probably a really fun drive Oh yeah, yeah. Were you able to actually move your legs to push the the, the pedals? <laughs> uh, yeah, I. So it ended at a park, and I wound up sitting on a chair in the park in the shade and just kind of sipping water until I could make myself stand up. And then after that, it was okay. But I, I was probably in the park for twenty minutes, just recuperating to the point where I could walk. So you know, without feeling like I was going to keel over and pass out. So you know, realistically, yeah, that level of exertion is interesting. And my ultimate goal is actually to run a, a full Ironman. So, but I need to get back into shape. I've done a marathon. I know what it takes. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll do a marathon. I just, it feels a little bit crazy to me to be planning to train for and run a marathon in three months, but I'm going for it. So what I'm pulling together in that is, I bought a training on Training Peaks, which is an app on your phone. And so I'm just following that that running plan. And, uh, you know, so far so good. I'm, I've, I've done the first day. But yeah, I actually, you know, made it through the run. Wasn't terrible. You know, my body kind of knows what to do. I'd been kind of doing some training off and on for a little while before that. So I'm, I'm going to be in okay shape and I'll be okay to run the marathon in three in three months. But it's going to be a little bit nuts. But Training Peaks, I'm really, really liking it. I actually paid for their membership. And I think it was like 100 bucks for the year or something like that. But what it gives you is it allows you then to import these trainings. And that training cost me like 30 bucks. So you import the training into Training Peaks. And then it just tells you what you're doing every day, right? And they have different coaches that have designed them. So, so that's been awesome. The other goal has to do with church and just kind of getting some stuff organized there. Because in my congregation, I'm the president of one of the auxiliaries. And anyway, of the Sunday school is is what I'm in charge of. So, you know, just some goals there and some some planning for that. I've been using a system called ClickUp. Before, we used a system called Notion. And Notion had some pretty severe lack in functionality that ClickUp 
doesn't lack. And most of it's around automation. So I can automate with it. I can use Zapier with it. Um, it actually integrates with Zoom and GitHub and Sentry and a whole bunch of other tools that I'm using for some of my more software-related stuff. And so I'm, I'm really, really digging it. And I'm probably going to wind up moving most of the podcast tracking stuff over to it. But it's project management system. Right now, I'm on the free plan. And I think the only limitation is the amount of space you can have, right? So I can add as many people to it as I want and stuff like that. And then if I wind up paying, then I do have to pay per user. So that is a consideration down the road. But for right now, it's working out really well. And I love the way that their task management works in ways that things like Trello or Basecamp or some of these other tools that I've tried to use in the past just haven't quite worked for me. So anyway, those are those are my picks. So click up uh, Training Peaks and you know buying a plan so that you can go run a marathon. The marathon I'm running is the Utah Valley Marathon. So like I said, right here where we live. So anyway, those are my picks. Gerger, do you have some picks for us? Well, first of all, I love hearing about that. It's amazing. If I can add, you know, one of the you know personal things, I actually what I love doing is I love baking bread. And I've been I've been doing that for mm. years. I've been growing my own cultures. And the the fact that's amazing about that is, you know, we engineers enjoy building things, creating things. And in that aspect, I think we create a little bit of life bread is there, i think there's nothing like bread because what we do is we, we actually create life three times to build one bread right so from the actual ingredient from the flour that uh, used to be a plant at some point we killed it we create bacteria and yeast which is another form of life which we kill by baking and then we get bread that gives us life. So, so it's, it's a very interesting uh, life cycle. I love doing that. I just, just recently bought about 200 pounds of flour uh, from Italy, from South Italy. They have phenomenal types of flour. And, and now I use that to you know build, ferment, uh, bake pizza, and, and so on. So if, if there's anyone who is in any way like me and enjoys doing that, uh, it's a fantastic habit. It's like having a pet because you have to feed something <laughs> every day. You, you build something with your hands, not having to use a keyboard or anything. And it's really hard to actually, if you're in, into building, uh, creating your own culture of levain or um, yeast, then you basically, it's, it's very hard to kill it because it's so resilient. And if you need to go somewhere on a trip, you know, nowadays trips are very popular. <laughs> Just kidding. But if you, if you need to leave it, at home and not feed it for a while, then that's totally okay. When you come back, you can redo that. Uh, I know there is a lot of content on YouTube about that. I don't have anything, anything specific to recommend because all these all these content creators are going to have different approaches to sharing their knowledge, and it's actually a very simple thing. So, I would suggest just uh, trying to search for it if you're into it. Very fulfilling thing, at least to me. Aside from for that, from that, I think what I'm going to share again is if people are interested in any of this, what we talked about, we kind of love sharing that in form of blog posts or videos. So if you want to know more, if you want to learn more about anything uh, that's related to our lives as, as engineers, whether it's development in JavaScript, 
React or Vue or Angular or Node.js or Cloud or whether it's uh, you know Jira and dashboards and all that stuff, you can head over to modus3.com. We have a really well-visited blog and we have a lot of people who, who are actually participating in uh, creating that content, a lot of perspectives too. And also YouTube slash Modus Create, actually just Modus Create, uh, where we are standing up a YouTube channel. A lot of, again, similar uh, topics I try to record as well. I've been way into micro front ends lately, so I haven't had the opportunity to record more. But I kid you not, I'm working, I'm committing to uh, recording more in a way that I'm continuing to invest continuing to invest into my little home studio. And that uh, means that I will get back to that game and continue creating content for everybody to, you know, do things that we do together, contribute here and grow. There you go. There's one more thing that I wanted to throw in real quick that I didn't mention earlier. So it turns out if you use a referral code for DigitalOcean, you get two months or $100 credited to your account that you can use. So I'm going to slide my referral link right in here in case anybody wants to use DigitalOcean two months for free or with $100 of credit. Nice. All right, Gerger, if people want to find you online, connect with you on Twitter or GitHub, that's usually where people are. Uh, how do they find you? Sure. So on Twitter, G, it's my first name with an added G, G-G-R-G-U-R. I'm sure that's going to be uh, listed. Also, well, I am trying to spin up my own website. I've, I've had the domain for grgur.com for the longest time. If you want to email me, it's grgur.com, uh, actually, grgur at grgur.com, or it's, if it's easier, at moduscreate.com. Feel free to hit me up. Uh, I actually love communicating about everything we are working with. I love uh, solving problems. I love hearing about problems. and So feel free to do that. If there's anything you see on those YouTube videos, feel free to comment. I really try to respond to every single one of them. And that's it. I really enjoyed having this opportunity. I love, I love the challenges. Thank you for that too. I know it's a complex topic. It's not always easy to introduce something like that. Uh, so I really appreciate having this opportunity. Awesome. All right, folks, we'll go ahead and wrap it up there. Thanks again for coming. This was a lot of fun. And, Thank you for uh, having me. A lot of fun indeed. Till next time, folks, Max out. Bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.